0: Chapter 4 of the Story of My Boyhood and Youth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of My Boyhood and Youth by John Muir. Chapter 4 A Paradise of Birds. Bird Favorites. The Prairie Chickens. Waterfowl. A Loon on the Defensive. Passenger Pigeons. The Wisconsin Oak Openings were a summer paradise for songbirds, and a fine place to get acquainted with them. For the trees stood wide apart, allowing one to see the happy home seekers as they arrived in the spring, their mating, nest building, the brooding and feeding of the young, and after they were full fledged and strong, to see all the families of the neighborhood gathering and getting ready to leave in the fall. Excepting the geese and ducks and pigeons, nearly all of our summer birds arrived singly or in small, draggled flocks, but when frost and falling leaves brought their winter homes to mind, they assembled in large flocks on dead or leafless trees by the side of a meadow or field, perhaps to get acquainted and talk the thing over. Some species held regular daily meetings for several weeks before finally setting forth on their long, southern journeys. Strange to say, we never saw them start. Some morning we would find them gone. Doubtless they migrated in the night time. Comparatively few species remained all winter, the nuthatch, chickadee, owl, prairie chicken, quail, and a few stragglers from the main flocks of ducks, jays, hawks, and bluebirds only after the country was settled did either jays or bluebirds winter with us the brave frosty fine chickadees and nuthatches stayed all the year wholly independent of farms and man's food and affairs with the first hints of spring came the brave little bluebirds darling singers as blue as the best sky and of course we all love them their rich crisp warbling is perfectly delightful soothing and cheering sweet and whisperingly low nature's fine love touches every note going straight home into one's heart and withal they are hardy and brave fearless fighters in defense of home when we boys approached their knot-hole nests the bold little fellows kept scolding and diving at us and tried to strike us in the face and oftentimes we were afraid they would prick our eyes but the boldness of the little housekeepers only made us love them the more. None of the bird people of Wisconsin welcomed us more heartily than the common robin. Far from showing alarm at the coming of settlers into their native woods, they reared their young around our gardens as if they liked us. And how heartily we admired the beauty and fine manners of these graceful birds, and their loud, cheery song of, Fear not, fear not, cheer up, cheer up, It was easy to love them, for they reminded us of the robin redbreast of Scotland. Like the bluebirds, they dared every danger in defense of home, and we often wondered that birds so gentle could be so bold, and that sweet-voiced singers could so fiercely fight and scold. Of all the great singers that sweeten Wisconsin, one of the best-known and best-loved is the brown thrush, or thrasher, strong and able without being familiar, And easily seen and heard. Rosy purple evenings after thunder showers are the favorite song times when the winds have died away and the steaming ground and the leaves and flowers fill the air with fragrance. Then the male makes haste to the topmost spray of an oak tree and sings loud and clear with delightful enthusiasm until sundown, mostly, I suppose, for his mate sitting on the precious eggs in a brush heap and how faithful and watchful and daring he is woe to the snake or squirrel that ventured to go nigh the nest we often saw him diving on them pecking them about the head and driving them away as bravely as the kingbird drives away hawks their rich and varied strains made the air fairly quiver we boys often tried to interpret the wild ringing melody and put it into words After the arrival of the thrushes came the bobolinks, gushing, gurgling, inexhaustible fountains of song, pouring forth floods of sweet notes over the broad Fox River meadows in wonderful variety and volume, crowded and mixed beyond description, as they hovered on quivering wings above their hidden nests in the grass. It seemed marvelous to us that birds so moderate in size could hold so much of this wonderful song-stuff each one of them poured forth music enough for a whole flock singing as if its whole body feathers and all were made up of music flowing glowing bubbling melody interpenetrated here and there with small scintillating prickles and spicules we never became so intimately acquainted with the bobolinks as with the thrushes for they lived far out on the broad fox river meadows while the thrushes sang on the treetops around every home. The bobolinks were among the first of our great singers to leave us in the fall, going apparently direct to the rice fields of the southern states, where they grew fat and were slaughtered in countless numbers for food, sad fate for singers so purely divine. One of the gayest of the singers is the red-winged blackbird. In the spring, when his scarlet epaulets shine brightest, and his little modest gray wife is sitting on the nest, built on rushes in a swamp, he sits on a nearby oak and devotedly sings almost all day. His rich simple strain is bompali, bompali, or bapali, as interpreted by some. In summer, after nesting cares are over, they assemble in flocks of hundreds and thousands to feast on Indian corn when it is in the milk, Scattering over a field, each selects an ear, strips the husk down far enough to lay bare an inch or two of the end of it, enjoys an exhilarating feast, and, after all are full, they rise simultaneously with a quick bier of wings, like an old-fashioned church congregation fluttering to their feet when the minister, after giving out the hymn, says, Let the congregation arise and sing. Alighting on nearby trees, they sing with a hearty vengeance, bursting out without any puttering prelude in glorious glad concert. Hundreds or thousands of exulting voices with sweet gurgling bumpalese mingled with chippy, vibrant, and exploding gobules of musical notes, making a most enthusiastic, indescribable joy song, a combination unlike anything to be heard elsewhere in the bird kingdom something like bagpipes, flutes, violins, pianos, and human-like voices, all bursting and bubbling at once. Then suddenly someone of the joyful congregation shouts, cheer, cheer, and all stop as if shot. The sweet-voiced meadowlark with its placid, simple song of Piri Iri ordico was another favorite, and we soon learned to admire the Baltimore Oriole, and its wonderful hanging nests, and the scarlet tanager glowing like fire amid the green leaves. But no singer of them all got farther into our hearts than the little speckle-breasted song-sparrow, one of the first to arrive and begin nest-building and singing. The richness, sweetness, and pathos of this small darling's song, as he sat on a low bush, often brought tears to our eyes. The little, cheery, modest chickadee midget, loved by every innocent boy and girl, man and woman, and by many not altogether innocent, was one of the first of the birds to attract our attention, drawing nearer and nearer to us as the winter advanced, bravely singing his faint silvery, lisping, tinkling notes, ending with a bright dee, 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 however frosty the weather. The nuthatches, who also stayed all winter with us, were favorites with us boys, we loved to watch them as they traced the bark furrows of the oaks and hickories head downward deftly flicking off loose scales and splinters in search of insects and braving the coldest weather as if their little sparks of life were as safely warm in winter as in summer unquenchable by the severest frost with the help of the chickadees they made a delightful stir in the solemn winter days and when we were out chopping we never ceased to wonder how their slender naked toes could be kept warm when our own were so painfully frosted, though clad in thick socks and boots. And we wondered and admired the more when we thought of the little midgets sleeping in knot holes when the temperature was far below zero, sometimes thirty-five degrees below, and in the morning, after a minute breakfast of a few frozen insects and hoar-frost crystals, playing and chatting in cheery tones as if food, weather, and everything was according to their own warm hearts. Our Yankee told us that the name of this darling was Devil Downhead. Their big neighbors, the Owls, also made good winter music, singing out loud in wild, gallant strains, bespeaking brave comfort. Let the frost bite as it might. The solemn hooting of the species with the widest throat seemed to us the very wildest of all the winter sounds. Prairie chickens came strolling in family flocks about the shanty, picking seeds and grasshoppers like domestic fowls, and they became still more abundant as wheat and cornfields were multiplied, but also wilder, of course, when every shotgun in the country was aimed at them. The booming of the males during the mating season was one of the loudest and strangest of the early spring sounds, being easily heard on calm mornings at a distance of half or three-fourths of a mile. As soon as the snow was off the ground, they assembled in flocks of a dozen or two on an open spot, usually on the side of a ploughed field, ruffled up their feathers, inflated the curious colored sacks on the sides of their necks, and strutted about with queer gestures, something like turkey gobblers, uttering strange, loud, rounded drumming calls, boom, 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 interrupted by choking sounds. My brother Daniel caught one while she was sitting on her nest in our cornfield. The young are just like domestic chicks, run with the mother as soon as hatched, and stay with her until autumn, feeding on the ground, never taking wing unless disturbed. In winter, when full grown, they assemble in large flocks, fly about sundown to selected roosting places on tall trees, and to feeding places in the morning, unhusked cornfields, if any are to be found in the neighborhood, or thickets of dwarf birch and willows, the buds of which furnish a considerable part of their food when snow covers the ground. The wild rice marshes along the Fox River and around Puckaway Lake. Were the summer homes of millions of ducks, and in the Indian summer, when the rice was ripe, they grew very fat. The magnificent mallards in particular afforded our Yankee neighbors royal feasts almost without a price, for often as many as a half-dozen were killed at a shot. But we seldom were allowed a single hour for hunting, and so got very few. The autumn duck season was a glad time for the Indians also, they feasted and grew fat not only on the ducks but on the wild rice, large quantities of which they gathered as they glided through the midst of the generous crop in canoes, bending down handfuls over the sides and beating out the grain with small paddles. The warmth of the deep spring fountains of the creek in our meadow kept it open all the year, and a few pairs of wood ducks, the most beautiful, we thought, of all the ducks, wintered in it i well remember the first specimen i ever saw father shot it in the creek during a snowstorm brought it into the house and called us around him saying come bairns and admire the work of god displayed in this bonny bird nobody but god could paint feathers like these just look at the colors how they shine and how fine they overlap and blend together like the colors of the rainbow and we all agreed that never, never before had we seen so awful bonny a bird. A pair nested every year in the hollow top of an oak stump about fifteen feet high that stood on the side of the meadow, and we used to wonder how they got the fluffy young ones down from the nest and across the meadow to the lake when they were only helpless, featherless midgets. Whether the mother carried them to the water on her back or in her mouth, I never saw the thing done or found anybody who had, until this summer, when Mr. Holabird, a keen observer, told me that he once saw the mother carry them from the nest-tree in her mouth, quickly coming and going to a nearby stream, and in a few minutes get them all together and proudly sail away. Sometimes a flock of swans were seen passing over at a great height on their long journeys, and we admired their clear bugle notes. But they seldom visited any of the lakes in our neighborhood, so seldom that when they did it was talked of for years. One was shot by a blacksmith on a mill pond with a long-range sharps rifle, and many of the neighbors went far to see it. The common gray goose, Canada honker, flying in regular harrow-shaped flocks, was one of the wildest and wariest of all the large birds that enlivened the spring and autumn. They seldom ventured to alight in our small lake, fearing, I suppose, that hunters might be concealed in the rushes, but on account of their fondness for the young leaves of winter wheat when they were a few inches high, they often alighted on our fields when passing on their way south, and occasionally even in our cornfields, when a snowstorm was blowing and they were hungry and wing-weary, with nearly an inch of snow on their backs. In such times of distress we used to pity them even while trying to get a shot at them. They were exceedingly cautious and circumspect, usually flew several times around the adjacent thickets and fences to make sure that no enemy was near before settling down, and one always stood on guard, relieved from time to time while the flock was feeding. Therefore there was no chance to creep up on them unobserved. You had to be well hidden before the flock arrived. It was the ambition of boys to be able to shoot these wary birds. I never got but two, both of them at one so-called lucky shot. When I ran to pick them up, one of them flew away, but as the poor fellow was sorely wounded, he didn't fly far. When I caught him after a short chase, he uttered a piercing cry of terror and despair, which the leader of the flock heard at a distance of about a hundred rods. They had flown off in frightened disorder, of course, but had got into the regular harrow-shaped order when the leader heard the cry, and I shall never forget how bravely he left his place at the head of the flock and hurried back, screaming, and struck at me in trying to save his companion. I dodged down and held my hands over my head, and thus escaped a blow of his elbows. Fortunately, I had left my gun at the fence, and the life of this noble bird was spared, after he had risked it in trying to save his wounded friend or neighbor or family relation. For so shy a bird boldly to attack a tacky hunter showed wonderful sympathy and courage. This is one of my strangest hunting experiences. Never before had I regarded wild geese as dangerous or capable of such noble self-sacrificing devotion. The loud, clear call of the handsome bobwhites was one of the pleasantest and most characteristic of our spring sounds, and we soon learned to imitate it so well that a bold cock often accepted our challenge and came flying to fight. The young run as soon as they are hatched and follow their parents until spring, roosting on the ground in a close bunch, heads out ready to scatter and fly. These fine birds were seldom seen when we first arrived in the wilderness. But when wheat fields supplied abundance of food, they multiplied very fast, although oftentimes sore-pressed during hard winters when the snow reached a depth of two or three feet, covering their food, while the mercury fell to twenty or thirty degrees below zero. Occasionally, although shy on account of being persistently hunted, under pressures of extreme hunger in the very coldest weather, when the snow was deepest, they ventured into barnyards, and even approached the doorsteps of houses, searching for any sort of scraps and crumbs, as if piteously begging for food. One of our neighbors saw a flock come creeping up through the snow, unable to fly, hardly able to walk, and, while approaching the door, several of them actually fell down and died, showing that birds usually so vigorous and apparently independent of fortune suffer and lose their lives in extreme weather like the rest of us frozen to death like settlers caught in blizzards none of our neighbors perished in storms though many had feet ears and fingers frost-nipped or solidly frozen as soon as the lake ice melted we heard the lonely cry of the loon one of the wildest and most striking of all the wilderness sounds, a strange, sad, mournful, unearthly cry, half laughing, half wailing. Nevertheless, the great northern diver, as our species is called, is a brave, hardy, beautiful bird, able to fly underwater about as well as above it, and to spear and capture the swiftest fishes for food. Those that haunted our lake were so wary none was shot for years, though every boy hunter in the neighborhood was ambitious to get one to prove his skill. On one of our bitter cold New Year holidays I was surprised to see a loon in the small open part of the lake at the mouth of the inlet that was kept from freezing by the warm spring water i knew that it could not fly out of so small a place for these heavy birds have to beat the water for half a mile or so before they can get fairly on the wing their narrow fin-like wings are very small as compared with the weight of the body and are evidently made for flying through water as well as through the air and it is by means of their swift flight through the water and the swiftness of the blow they strike with their long, spear-like bills that they are able to capture the fishes on which they feed. I ran down the meadow with the gun, got into my boat, and pursued that poor winter-bound straggler. Of course he dived again and again, but had to come up to breathe, and I at length got a quick shot at his head and slightly wounded or stunned him, caught him, and ran proudly back to the house with my prize. I carried him in my arms. He didn't struggle to get away or offer to strike me, and when I put him on the floor in front of the kitchen stove, he just rested quietly on his belly, as noiseless and motionless as if he were a stuffed specimen on a shelf, held his neck erect, gave no sign of suffering from any wound, and, though he was motionless, his small black eyes seemed to be ever keenly watchful. His formidable bill very sharp, three or three and a half inches long, and shaped like a pickaxe, was held perfectly level. But the wonder was that he did not struggle or make the slightest movement. We had a tortoiseshell cat, an old Tom of great experience, who was so fond of lying under the stove in frosty weather that it was difficult even to poke him out with a broom. But when he saw and smelled that strange, big, fishy, black-and-white, speckly bird, the like of which he had never before seen, he rushed wildly to the farther corner of the kitchen, looked back cautiously and suspiciously, and began to make a careful study of the handsome but dangerous-looking stranger. Becoming more and more curious and interested, he at length advanced a step or two for a nearer view and nearer smell, and, as the wonderful bird kept absolutely motionless, he was encouraged to venture gradually nearer and nearer until within perhaps five or six feet of its breast then the wary loon not liking tom's looks in so near a view which perhaps recalled to his mind the plundering minks and muskrats he had to fight when they approached his nest prepared to defend himself by slowly almost imperceptibly drawing back his long pickaxe bill and without the slightest fuss or stir, held it at level and ready just over his tail. With that dangerous bill drawn so far back out of the way, Tom's confidence in the stranger's peaceful intentions seemed almost complete, and thus encouraged he at last ventured forward with wondering, questioning eyes, and quivering nostrils until he was only eighteen or twenty inches from the loon's smooth white breast. When the beautiful bird, apparently as peaceful and inoffensive as a flower, saw that his hairy yellow enemy had arrived at the right distance, the loon, who evidently was a fine judge of the reach of his spear, shot it forward quick as a lightning flash, in marvelous contrast to the wonderful slowness of the preparatory posing backward motion. The aim was true to a hairbreadth. Tom was struck right in the center of his forehead between the eyes. I thought his skull was cracked perhaps it was the sudden astonishment of that outraged cat the virtuous indignation and wrath terror and pain are far beyond description his eyes and screams and desperate retreat told all that when the blow was received he made a noise that i never heard a cat make before or since an awfully deep condensed screechy explosive as he bounced straight up in the air like a bucking bronco and when he alighted after his spring he rushed madly across the room and made frantic efforts to climb up the hard-finished plaster wall not satisfied to get the width of the kitchen away from his mysterious enemy for the first time that cold winter he tried to get out of the house anyhow anywhere out of that loon infested room when he finally ventured to look back and saw that the barbarous bird was still there tranquil and motionless in front of the stove he regained command of some of his shattered senses and carefully commenced to examine his wound backed against the wall in the farthest corner and keeping his eye on the outrageous bird he tenderly touched and washed the sore spot wetting his paw with his tongue pausing now and then as his courage increased to glare and stare and growl at his enemy with looks and tones wonderfully human, as if saying, You confounded, fishy, unfair rascal! What did you do that for? What had I done to you? Faithless, legless, long-nosed wretch! Intense experiences like the above bring out the humanity that is in all animals. One touch of nature, even a cat and loon touch, makes all the world kin. It was a great memorable day when the first flock of passenger pigeons came to our farm, calling to mind the story we had read about them when we were at school in Scotland. Of all God's feathered people that sailed the Wisconsin sky, no other bird seemed to us so wonderful. The beautiful wanderers flew like the winds in flocks of millions from climate to climate in accord with the weather, finding their food, acorns, beech nuts, pine nuts, cranberries, strawberries, huckleberries, juniper berries, hackberries, buckwheat, rice, wheat, oats, corn, in fields and forests thousands of miles apart. I have seen flocks streaming south in the fall so large that they were flowing over from horizon to horizon in an almost continuous stream all day long at the rate of forty or fifty miles an hour, like a mighty river in the sky, widening, contracting, descending like falls and cataracts, and rising suddenly here and there in huge, ragged masses like high-plashing spray how wonderful the distances they flew in a day in a year in a lifetime they arrived in wisconsin in the spring just after the sun had cleared away the snow and alighted in the woods to feed on the fallen acorns that they had missed the previous autumn a comparatively small flock swept thousands of acres perfectly clean of acorns in a few minutes by moving straight ahead with a broad front all got their share for the rear constantly became the van by flying over the flock and alighting in front, the entire flock constantly changing from rear to front, revolving something like a wheel with a low buzzing wing roar that could be heard a long way off. In summer they feasted on wheat and oats and were easily approached as they rested on the trees along the sides of the field after a good full meal displaying beautiful iridescent colors as they moved their necks backward and forward when we went very near them. Every shotgun was aimed at them, and everybody feasted on pigeon pies, and not a few of the settlers feasted also on the beauty of the wonderful birds. The breast of the male is a fine rosy red, the lower part of the neck behind and along the sides changing from the red of the breast to gold, emerald green, and rich crimson. The general color of the upper parts is grayish-blue and the underparts white. The extreme length of the bird is about seventeen inches, the finely mottled slender tail about eight inches, and extent of wings twenty-four inches. The females are scarcely less beautiful. "'Oh, what bonny, bonny birds!' we exclaimed over the first that fell into our hands. "'Oh, what colors!' Look at their breasts, bonny as roses, and at their necks a glowin' with every color, just like the wonderful wood-ducks. Oh, the bonny, bonny creatures! They beat up! Where did they a-come from? And where are they a-going? It's awful like a sin to kill them!' To this some smug, practical old sinner would remark, Ah, it's a pity, as ye say, to kill the bonny things, but they were made to be killed,' and sent for us to eat as the quails were sent to God's chosen people, the Israelites, when they were starving in the desert yont the Red Sea. And I must confess that meat was never put up in neater, handsomer painted packages. In the New England and Canada woods, beech nuts were their best and most abundant food. Further north, cranberries and huckleberries. After everything was cleaned up in the north and winter was coming on, they went south for rice, corn, acorns, haws, wild grapes, crab apples, sparkle berries, etc. They seemed to require more than half of the continent for feeding grounds, moving from one table to another, field to field, forest to forest, finding something ripe and wholesome all the year round. In going south in the fine Indian summer weather, they flew high and followed one another, though the head of the flock might be hundreds of miles in advance but against headwinds they took advantage of the inequalities of the ground, flying comparatively low. All followed the leaders' ups and downs over hill and dale, though far out of sight, never hesitating at any turn of the way, vertical or horizontal, that the leaders had taken, though the largest flock stretched across several states and belts of different kinds of weather. There were no roosting or breeding places near our farm, and I never saw any of them until long after the great flocks were exterminated. I therefore quote from Audubon's and Pocagon's vivid descriptions. Towards evening, Audubon says, they depart for the roosting place, which may be hundreds of miles distant. One on the banks of Green River, Kentucky, was over three miles wide and forty long. My first view of it, says the great naturalist, was about a fortnight after it had been chosen by the birds, and I arrived there nearly two hours before sunset. Few pigeons were then to be seen, but a great many persons with horses and wagons and armed with guns, long poles, sulfur pots, pine pitch, torches, etc., had already established encampments on the borders. Two farmers had driven upwards of three hundred hogs A distance of more than a hundred miles to be fattened on slaughtered pigeons here and there the people employed in plucking and salting what had already been secured were sitting in the midst of piles of birds dung several inches thick covered the ground many trees two feet in diameter were broken off at no great distance from the ground and the branches of many of the tallest and largest had given way as if the forest had been swept by a tornado. Not a pigeon had arrived at sundown. Suddenly a general cry arose: Here they come! The noise they made, though still distant, reminded me of a hard gale at sea passing through the rigging of a close-reefed ship. Thousands were soon knocked down by the polemen. The birds continued to pour in. THE FIRES WERE LIGHTED, AND A MAGNIFICENT AS WELL AS TERRIFYING SIGHT PRESENTED ITSELF. THE PIGEONS POURING IN ALIGHTED EVERYWHERE, ONE ABOVE ANOTHER, UNTIL SOLID MASSES WERE FORMED ON THE BRANCHES ALL AROUND. HERE AND THERE THE PERCHES GAVE WAY WITH A CRASH, AND FALLING DESTROYED HUNDREDS BENEATH, FORCING DOWN THE DENSE GROUPS WITH WHICH EVERY STICK WAS LOADED, A SCENE OF UPROAR AND CONFLICT. I found it useless to speak or even to shout to those persons nearest me. Even the reports of the guns were seldom heard, and I was made aware of the firing only by seeing the shooters reloading. None dared venture within the line of devastation. The hogs had been penned up in due time, the picking up of the dead and wounded being left for the next morning's employment. The pigeons were constantly coming in, and it was after midnight before I perceived a decrease in the number of those that arrived. The uproar continued all night, and anxious to know how far the sound reached, I sent off a man who, returning two hours after, informed me that he had heard it distinctly three miles distant. Toward daylight the noise in some measure subsided. Long before objects were distinguishable the pigeons began to move off in a direction quite different from that in which they had arrived the evening before, and at sunrise all that were able to fly had disappeared. The howling of the wolves now reached our ears, and the foxes, lynxes, cougars, bears, coons, opossums, and polecats were seen sneaking off, while eagles and hawks of different species, accompanied by a crowd of vultures, came to supplant them and enjoy a share of the spoil. Then the authors of all this devastation began their entry amongst the dead, the dying, and mangled. The pigeons were picked up and piled in heaps, until each had as many as they could possibly dispose of, when the hogs were let loose to feed on the remainder. The breeding places are selected with reference to abundance of food, and countless myriads resort to them at this period the note of the pigeon is coo 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 like that of the domestic species but much shorter they caress by billing and during incubation the male supplies the female with food as the young grow the tyrant of creation appears to disturb the peaceful scene armed with axes to chop down the squab laden trees and the abomination of desolation and destruction produced far surpasses even that of the roosting-places. Pokagon, an educated Indian writer, says, I saw one nesting-place in Wisconsin one hundred miles long and from three to ten miles wide. Every tree, some of them quite low and scrubby, had from one to fifty nests on each. Some of the nests overflow from the oaks to the hemlock and pine-woods. When the pigeon hunters attack the breeding places, they sometimes cut the timber from thousands of acres. Millions are caught in nets with salt or grain for bait, and schooners, sometimes loaded down with the birds, are taken to New York, where they are sold for a cent apiece. End of chapter 4